0: Imagine if this morning when you got up, you weren't able to have access to clean running water to wash your hands or to drink fresh water that's clean and pure, or to do the random million things you might do around the house, washing and cooking. That's not something that if you live in the West, in the United States, that you even have probably ever had to think about. I've certainly never had to think about where running water will come from, and yet for Millions of people, they've never had the luxury of fresh, clean, running water. My next guest is Justin Narducci. He is the CEO of the oldest uh, evangelical freshwater providing organization. And uh, Justin joins me to talk about the work that LifeWater is doing in bringing fresh water, but also sanitation and communities and villages around the world. Many, many children today, still in 2019, die from preventable diseases that are waterborne diseases in ways that children in the West don't even have to think about or worry about. Uh, But Christians can make a difference. And Justin joins me to talk about Uh, work that his organization is doing, ways that uh, Christians can get involved, why he really strongly believes that Christians must both proclaim the good news of the gospel, but also live out the good news of the gospel by loving our neighbors and coming alongside the most vulnerable. This will be a thought-provoking conversation. Let's join our discussion now with Justin Narducci. Justin, thanks for joining me, man.
1: Happy to be here. I love the show. Thanks.
0: So as I mentioned in the intro you are the CEO of Lifewater, the oldest evangelical clean water organization in America. Can you share a, a little bit of, first about maybe your pathway to do this work uh, personally and then uh, a little bit about the history of of Lifewater.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. I have sort of a strange background. I started my career with um, the Boeing company mm. and um, was involved in weapon systems. So um, learned a lot about a well-run company that provides a great product, uh, sustainable business product um, to a marketplace, but was happy to transition to Christian community development work about 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I've learned is there's actually like, obviously, weapon systems are different than um, Christian community development work, but there are a lot of principles that apply even to our context here that I picked up at the Boeing Company. So very grateful for that opportunity and the ability to, to leverage that learning into what we do here every day at LifeWater. Mm-hmm. I've been here six years. LifeWater's been around since 1977. Actually, we trace our roots back to the 60s, but really gain momentum during some of the Luzon movement stuff, Mm. 70s and 80s. And our founder uh, would go to these uh, Luzon gatherings and put a little life water booth up, especially the ones for the itinerant um, preachers. And he basically said, um, our ministry is here to help you grow your church. And if your community needs safe water, we would provide that. And um, so he took applications. This is before you know, modern technology. And mm-hmm. they would fax these applications back and forth mm. and this information. And and literally, it was sort of like the beginning of the short-term mission movement where um, North American Christians who had some capacity in this type of work would go and, and serve in villages uh, with these itinerant pastors trying to provide safe water sources. Mm. He gathered uh, more than 1,000 applications from a 100 different countries at those um, those Luzon gatherings, and literally they just started working through them one by one. So that's, that's sort of where we got started. Obviously, things have changed over the years, and mm-hmm. uh, we're doing things a little bit differently than we used to, but the principles are still the same. We're still focusing on blessing and growing local churches and meeting um, practical needs of vulnerable people and communities all over the world. Mm.
0: Explain a, maybe the scope of the the need, right, for yeah. for fresh water that uh, your organization is meeting?
1: Yeah. Um, there's been a, since I would say the Sustainable Development Goals came out, um, the, the sort of world understanding of the water crisis has mm. uh, dramatically improved. And we've actually made a ton of gains, especially in urban areas where, um, you know, you can get a lot of access to safe water improved by putting in some actual utilities for people who are living in slums or these urban centers in China and India, and things like that. So on a global scale, we still have about 850 million people that don't have what's called basic access to safe water. And there's a whole bunch of complicated ways that that's calculated. But about half of those people are drinking water from swamps or mm. um, rivers or open sources. And then another half of those people have to travel significant distances to find a water source. So um, you're talking about you know roughly a, a billion people who don't have wh- what would be considered by the World Health Organization safe water access. Mm. And then on the flip side of that, there's uh, sort of a growing awareness of the the relationship between um, waterborne diseases or sanitation and hygiene practices and how that relates to safe water. And so um, programming is moving uh, moving away from just safe water access to what are called WASH programs. So it would be like water access, sanitation, and hygiene. It's mm-hmm. an acronym. And it's the integrated uh, behavior change of people and how they relate to water and, and human waste and how that affects their overall health. And the best way for me to describe this is basically like if you and I were to go out to a village in Ethiopia today, and we drill a well in that community, the community's using that water. They grab that water, they put it into a jerry can that's contaminated with human waste. That that water is now contaminated, mm. even though water has safe water has been provided. And so um, the sanitation hygiene aspect of this challenge is, I would say, even a more significant problem because it relates to people's behaviors and their um, practices that have been happening for generations, you know, um, how people have defecated um, in the open and Mm -hmm. managed waste and have not or have practiced hand washing or how they relate to menstruation. There's a lot of these activities that are not sort of taboo in cultures. And um, even in our culture, I still see people who don't wash their hands. Dan, mm-hmm. I don't know. I hope you wash your hands. But it's, it's one of those things that has been normalized for sort of um, – The Western world, but is still in a rural community, very foreign and perpetuates disease and sickness. And so we have about 2.3 billion people who don't practice uh, what would be called like proper sanitation or hygiene practices. And when you combine those two factors, we're losing about 1,600 children under the age of five Mm. every day from preventable waterborne diseases. Mm-hmm. Almost all of that's happening in rural villages, um, outside of headlines or where, where news coverage is. And it's literally a way of life for vulnerable families. They have um, additional children because they know that not all of the children will will make it. And so very poor families ha- tend to have more children um, as a as life insurance policy um, to take care of them when they're older. And they know that not all of those children will last. And this is sort of the... The challenge for us as Christians, because we know that the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven doesn't look like that, and um, we're, we're sort of wrestling with how to continue to move forward and um, serve people in, a, in areas where destruction and death is normal.
0: I mean, it breaks your heart because um, these are, we use the term preventable deaths, preventable diseases, uh, just because, you know, these are... Um, Factors and conditions that we kind of take for granted here. Uh, when you describe just the the impact of not having that infrastructure, that water infrastructure, in place, you know how devastating it could be. It
1: really should break our hearts, right? I I think it's very. Uh, first of all, I think it's very eye opening. And then if you were to. Have a level of empathy. This is something I'm writing a book about. I'm writing a book on compassion Mm. and sort of like how hard it actually is to practice compassion in the world. And there's a lot of things that we do that are sort of generous, but I think uh, in many ways we're isolated or we're insulated ourselves from true acts of compassion. Like when Jesus has compassion on the masses, that's this this very like guttural, painful feel. That he feels for the people that were that he's feeding that day. I think the of the story of feeding the five thousand in Matthew, right? Mm -hmm. And the word there's this. It's this Greek. It's um. It's this deep guttural compassion that he feels for the crowd because he's Mm. in proximity with them. And the trouble with these statistics and sort of like our global awareness of these problems is we don't know these people, you know. And it's hard to have some empathy if we haven't been able to walk in their shoes. So you know i get to walk in villages all the time and i get to spend time with people who who have these challenges and i think that's the kind of stuff that really impacts us statistics i don't think move us uh, as people i think the exposure to the needs of our neighbors really mm-hmm. And not trying to solve the problem or like you know fix it right away, but just like listening, learning, empathizing—that's mm-hmm. true as much here in the West as it is in, in the majority world. But um, I think it's hard for us to really empathize with the plight of people who are so far away, and these problems seem so big and abstract, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Now you you were drawn to this in part because um, I mean this idea of clean water is personal for you, right? You something happened with your son and related to a waterborne disease.
1: Yeah. um, Great question. So uh, when I was working at Boeing, my wife and I really felt led to adopt. This is probably 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Long story short, we ended up adopting a child. And um, when we we brought him home from Africa, he was very sick and lethargic. And we actually thought – he had AIDS, and um, obviously we took the test and t- determined it wasn't. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with him, and we we thought we were going to lose this kid. He was lethargic, uh, very dehydrated. We couldn't keep water into him. I remember traveling home with him, even when we just got him, and I had my father and father in law, and we went through forty or fifty diapers on the way home. He's a little guy, like one mm-hmm. at the time, and I was like, "What is going on? Like, there's no way that this kid can handle moving through." you know, that much waste and still Mm -hmm. stay hydrated and lethargic. And what we found out over a couple months was that he had Giardia, which is another preventable waterborne disease. And, you know, we were able to treat that and obviously prevent it moving forward. And he's 11 now, he's thriving and doing well, but that's that's the kind of kid that we lose every day. And it's totally preventable. Yeah, that's
0: that's just heartbreaking when you think about all the children that are affected by that. Um, you talk also about kind of the dirty secret be- behind uh, this kind of work. What yeah. would you say that
1: is? Well, I think we we are challenged with um, a real sustainability crisis with water access, and I think more and more is going to come out about this. You know, we've made these significant gains. Uh, I think a billion people have access to safe water now than they used to in the 1990s. Um, But hand pump failure, you know, sort of the prototypical thing you imagine when you think of a water well, the hand pump thing on there, is is astronomically high. And I think having a strategy where we work with communities and local governments and even local businesses to make sure that communities are able to save for the repairs of these maintenance and have buy-in to the actual water source is a pretty significant thing. And mm. I think there's going to be more and more coming out about um, hand pump failure rates and people who are working on the front end of these programs to really help decrease those failure rates. Mm-hmm. Improve sustainability over the long term. I mean, it, just anecdotally, you're talking about 40 percent hand pump failure rate at 18 months. Mm-hmm. So, from a stewardship perspective, that's uh, that's bad stewardship. I don't yeah. think there's any other way to say it. And it's a disservice to the community. I mean, if you think about providing something to someone who's in need, and it only works for a few months and it breaks, that's pretty devastating.
0: And did not just not just bad you know for the flow of water but just in terms of you just think in terms of trust level between exactly between Psyche. The, yeah the end user and the the ministry and the sort of um the community uh being willing to embrace that you know again if it
1: again yeah yeah it really does contaminate everything for everyone
0: yeah so, um huge challenge you know th- there's been a lot of talk I think in the last year or two and it's kind of the the sort of the renewed age-old I think sort of false uh, dichotomy, but the debate in among evangelicals of, you know, do we just preach and proclaim the gospel, or mm-hmm. should we instead do humanitarian work, humanitarian relief work, or um, justice work? What's your answer to, to people that act like you have to choose between both?
1: <laughs> I actually just wrote an article, Christianity Today picked it up about this. Uh, it's called Clean Water or the Gospel. Mm. So very appropriate to this topic. And uh, I think the answer, I don't understand why we're having to choose between these two things. I think what happens is you gain a specialization in one or the other, and it becomes hard to integrate them both. That's That's sort of what I've seen among the peer organizations. A way that we've been able to bridge that here at LifeWater is by working with... um, in partnership, like actual partnership, we have agreements with people who are doing church planting or Mm -hmm. church mobilization activities or Christian colleges in these countries where we work. And um, we think the local church is a key component or should be a key component of community change. And um, if, if we're in Uganda, for example, and there are a lot of churches in Uganda. It's not that hard to start a church in Uganda. And so they're they're everywhere in a community. I was just looking at some data, and in one of our program areas, there's 50 churches, five zero. That's Mm. a lot of little churches. And right outside the church compound, you've got child-headed households that aren't able to build their own latrines or wouldn't be able to store water safely. They need help, right? Or widows in distress, And it's almost like taboo for churches in that context to serve these people. Mm. And so what we're trying to do is work with churches to change their, their disposition toward the vulnerable in their community and to see that... That serving those is actually an outreach, and it can help grow their church if we mobilize them and educate them on what they can do to make a difference in their own community. So for us, and I think others are doing this as well, integrating local churches, building that capacity, and engaging them thoughtfully in programming is a key component of our ministry. And it doesn't have to be a either or proposition. I just think we have to work better together. I thought I saw you had Chris Horst on this about mm-hmm. um, oh, rooting yeah. for rivals. I think I think having more of us work together in partnership to accomplish these things in specific geographies, like actually working together and having agreements that are formal, mm-hmm. and we expect things from each other, and we share the cost. You know that stuff really moves the needle, and we've we've had uh, significant success with that.
0: I like what you said about sometimes whatever it is our, that our is our specific calling that we we tend to think that that is the the most important, the only you know aspect of of the mission of God, where you know you know the body of Christ is diverse with unique callings and giftings, and and it also just seems like Jesus doesn't if you study Jesus in the Gospels he like doesn't let you choose between you know gospel proclamation, repentance uh, through faith in Christ, or um, acts of mercy and, and, and ministry that way. I mean, he's saying, you know, on the one hand, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. On the other hand, he's, you know, saying he's the embodiment of the, the promise of Isaiah of being good news for the poor. So, I mean, it just doesn't seem like you're,
1: Jesus lets you choose that way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I do know where this all came from. But um, yeah, I think, you know, getting back to uh, some of the the early disciples and the the proclamation of the kingdom of God and healing the sick mm. that 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 integral mission of of Jesus uh, is 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 essential and I don't think we have to make those choices. It's just hard, you know. And I, I think when you talk about something as technical as the work we do, you have to have people who are specialists in it. You know, we have mm-hmm. PhDs and MPHs people, and then you want to sort of make sure that you're not Neglecting the the actual work with churches and how do you build our institutional capacity, so that you have some equal or uh, at least related expertise in how do we help churches grow and how do we um, serve churches well and you know developing a theology of community outreach for Mm -hmm. you know that's not what that's not what our water engineers are really good at so we have to intentionally. Make sure that that's a priority for us institutionally because it's not it's not our natural mm-hmm. bent. Yeah,
0: and at the same time, you don't want uh, seminarians trying to do water engineering. So I mean, no like, heavens, yeah. no, no, no. no. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> yeah, no. So
1: it's uh, you know, everyone has their has their lane that they need to stay in, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think there's this one other aspect of of uh, Christian work that I don't want to be a part of anything that's that's um. That lacks quality to it. And I think one of the things that we're seeing more and more or is this idea where the vulnerable people in communities, the mother and her child, how do we treat them like a customer as if they were paying for this work? And give them first rate, high quality work as part of that kingdom of God advancing in that community. Like just blessing people to the ends of the earth as if, you know, they had all the money in the world to pay for this service. How would we treat them? Rather than sort of like throwing scraps to them or, you know, cut rate, cheap work that is going to break in the future and just sort of like. Flipping a coin to to someone, you know, as you pass by, and I think part of our um, part of our legacy as as Christian practitioners in this integral mission is what's going to be there in thirty years? What's going to be there in fifty years? Is it just going to be a bunch of broken hand pumps and people doing the same stuff? I just don't think that that's what we, I I don't think that that's becoming of of Christian work. And so we have to work really hard to ensure that we are professionals, but we are thoughtful about integral mission and the work of the local church. Mm.
0: The thought and the care and the work that y'all are putting in, you know, having done it for several decades now and having sort of a body of work that you can study and say, okay, what works and what isn't working, what's new, what's innovative, it really seems important in in this development area that uh, you're constantly improving and studying. And and seeing uh, where to go now. If you're if you're someone listening, and they're saying, I don't know much about water engineering, but I'm, I'm I deeply care about um, these people that are made in the image of God, whom God loves, who are in these areas that don't have access to clean water and sanitation and all these things. And I want to really be involved. Like someone ha- just just wants to be involved and make a difference. What are some ways that you would encourage uh, people to get involved?
1: Yeah. For our specific cause, I think we've worked really hard to put a lot of valuable resources on our website. So if people were to visit Mm -hmm. lifewater.org, if you go to our resources section in the bottom footer of our website, there's a lot of really helpful information for others who are interested.
0: And I want to encourage people to check that out and and get involved. You know, the scope of the problem is so massive. It's like, man, how can I even do anything? But when you figure out, okay, if we can have one village or, or one community. One
1: village at a time.
0: We can really do it. But uh, Justin, thank you so yeah. much for your work, for your commitment to this, and just for, uh, for what God is doing through uh, LifeWater, and uh, really grateful. We'll put all the links uh, on the show notes page, and glad that you're able to join me today.
1: Awesome. Thanks for the time, Dan.
0: It was great. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.